Hello and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny broadcasting high above Dongcheng District in Beijing, looking down from my window into a parking lot with a very long line of people about to get there. I guess it's now every other day COVID test. As soon as I finish my recording of this particular podcast, I'll be heading down to wait in that line. Talking to me, though, from across Beijing, no doubt a well-tested and well-rested academic, David Moser. David, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good considering, Jeremiah. I'm also in the same uh, predicament. This seems like uh, Beijing deja vu. Uh, we've been having some very various versions of this, and then we covered Shanghai in a previous uh, podcast. And, and now Beijing is on something that I would describe as, as a quasi-lockdown or a, a lockdown light, some people have called it, which means uh, we're kind of stuck because uh, all restaurants are closed, there's not much to do, um, and they're telling us to stay put. But you can get out and around, but there's really no reason for why not just stay home and eat what little food you have and get online. Right. It seems like if you live in a compound where there was a case, there are different levels of restrictions applied to the housing compounds. This is kind of what happened to me back in March. So if you happen to be unfortunate, live in a compound where somebody has popped positive for the Rona, you are going to be severely restricted in what you can do, where you can move around. For the rest of us who are fortunate enough not to be restricted to our house or restricted to our compound, as David mentioned, there's not too many places we can go. And, you know, I think frustrations are running high. It seems like more and more people here are kind of talking. This is not just people, foreigners, but also people I know who are Chinese nationals are, are kind of considering different ways of leaving the country. Uh, just this this week for a timestamp, we're reporting this on Wednesday, May 11th. One of the heads of a school here in Beijing did a runner uh, over the weekend. Nobody notified his school. He just kind of took off. And, you know, he has a, he's a, has a family. He's got young kids. I don't I think people were a little surprised, but I don't know that many people are blaming him. And then, of course, uh, today was also the day that the World Health Organization, uh, the director came out and had some uh, critical words for China's zero COVID strategy, although you wouldn't know that happened, of course, in China because all video of his remarks have been pretty uh, ruthlessly centered, censored in the uh, whack-a-mole game that the party and its various organs is playing with uh, any kind of information or any kind of commentary, satire, videos that contradict their notion that all is well in the land of zero COVID. I don't know. What are you seeing up there in uh, up there in Chaoyang District, which is one of the epicenters here in Beijing of uh, the latest outbreak? That's right. Chaoyang, where I am, is considered to be uh, the epicenter, the most serious, a high risk area. And so we have tests every day, every single day. If you can imagine almost almost 4 million people, basically more than the city of Chicago, getting tested every day. It's the, 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 the bureaucracy and the infrastructure here is astonishing. And usually I, I get my uh, PCR test in the morning and by the afternoon or late afternoon, I've got the results. So there are a lot of people wearing all kinds of white, uh, you know, terrifying looking PPE working overtime, I'll tell you. This is just, just, just the sheer low logistics of this is to me almost mind-boggling. And but and yes, while I while I wait in line, I hear all kinds of discussions about zero COVID and what are we doing, what in the world, and also especially because ironically, you know, Beijing only has a few hundred cases. Really, there aren't not that many. If this were any other place in the world, they they'd consider it solved. Yeah, but that's not the way. That's not the thinking that's going on right now. Well, David, obviously the situation in Beijing and in China 
uh, with the most recent COVID outbreak has exacerbated or inflamed some of the tensions that have always been kind of latent or at least been latent over the last two years between China and the rest of the world and particularly China and the West. And certainly it's kind of created some interesting conditions on the ground for those of us who live here and interacting with our friends and our neighbors here in, here in Beijing. And so it's with a, a really great pleasure to have with us uh, Peter Gries, who is a professor of Chinese politics at the University of Manchester, has written extensively about foreign policy, diplomacy, China's relations with the world, psychology in diplomacy, and nationalism in China. So, Pete, so good to see you. I mean, I don't know how many decades it's been. Uh, we go back to the uh, Lieberthal-Oxenberg uh, domain, you know, in the U University of Michigan. I haven't seen you in a long time. Yeah, it's great to see you, too. Um, crazy how time flies. Yeah. Uh, the core reason I really wanted to get you on this podcast uh, was uh, that we had some questions about nationalism, and I remembered your your great early book, 2004 book, Chinese New Nationalism, which, uh, as far as I know, was the first sort of substantial treatment of that subject. And I certainly used it a lot in my course packs for modern Chinese studies. But um, as I looked around, you know, for people that I could talk to, it's, it seems like you're the you're the main one right now who's really concentrating on this. And there is a dearth of social science data on this, on this sort of topic. As far as I know, there are no uh, polls that directly ask questions about sensitive political issues and sort of taking the temperature of the Chinese political uh, body. And even those of us who live in China, like Jeremiah, Jeremiah and I do, they interact with people of all walks of life, sometimes have a, don't have a sense of where their political orientations lie. So... I was was hoping that, um, and, and much of the information that we get just comes from social media and, and occasional public demonstrations, outbreaks, which is not very reliable. So I wonder if it's even possible. Can you give us a kind of a thumbnail of the demographics of this overall topic, Chinese nationalism, old versus young, rural versus urban, elite versus grassroots, et, et cetera? I think that would be very helpful to our, our listeners. Sure. Um First of all, thank you, David, for the kind words about um, that first book, uh, China's New Nationalism. Unfortunately, I, I, you know, when I go back to the book, um, which sought to kind of explain from a Chinese perspective um, what China's new nationalism that was emerging after Tiananmen was and what its drivers were, um, with a focus on historical narratives like the Century of Humiliation, um, with a focus on um, the sort of villains of that story, uh, Japan and the United States, those still largely appear to be the case, and if anything, intensified. Although the case studies in that book are, are, are pretty outdated, uh, it was things like the Belgrade bombing of 1999, a lot of the kind of underlying analyses um, I, I still am elaborating on and, and working on. You had a lot in your question there, uh, so let me start with uh, just one little piece of it, and then maybe we can follow up with other aspects. You were asking me about the demographics, and uh, I did a little bit more thinking about that. And I actually think I need to be, and we should be even more humble about what we do and don't know on that issue in terms of different groups, uh, subgroups within the Chinese population, older and younger Chinese, uh, men versus women, the more or less educated, uh, the more or less wealthy, um, the rural versus the urban. Uh, what do we know about enduring or what psychologists call state 
sorry, trait levels of something like nationalism or patriotism? The answer is not much. Although there are surveys that do touch on some of these sensitive issues, such as questions about, you know, how do you feel towards the following list of countries? And occasionally you can find surveys that ask questions about uh, topics like patriotism and nationalism. The resulting uh, correlations um, between these things are small and inconsistent to non-existent, mostly non-existent. In short, we don't see a lot of variation. We don't know a lot. Perhaps the only one I can be fairly confident about, and it's still a small uh, impact, is the urban-rural divide, uh, where we see that um, uh, rural Chinese are more likely to be slightly more nationalistic than more urban Chinese, um, which I think makes a lot of intuitive sense, given that urban Chinese probably have greater exposure to different cosmopolitan influences from living in the city and being exposed more to global uh, media, uh, perhaps, global consumer products. But other than that, I, I really don't think we know very much about these demographic differences. But I actually don't think that that's really the most important thing for understanding the dynamics of Chinese nationalism. I think the distinction between sort of enduring levels it's almost like a personality trait, you know. Zhang San is more nationalistic than Li Si. You know, that, that occurs and that could be measured um, by, you know, going back to Zhang San and Li Si uh, repeatedly, say every week for a couple months. And you might consistently find that Zhang San is slightly more nationalistic than Li Si. And that might be consequential for different kinds of research questions. But I think actually more important is the contextual factors that lead to fluctuations in what psychologists call uh, state or temporary levels of nationalism. So somebody can be going about their ordinary business day to day, uh, say a very cosmopolitan young Chinese university student in Beijing or Shanghai, uh, ordinarily be very open uh, to the West and to the world, ordinarily not necessarily be waving the Chinese flag in their daily life. But the moment there's some kind of incident with Japan, uh, they might be the most likely people to be on the streets. So it's that um, contextual element um, that make, can make one's national identity as a Chinese salient that I think arguably is, is even more important than, than differences across different subgroups in China. And I can talk a little bit more about why I think we don't see the big differences across subgroups um, in China, where we do see more substantial differences in, in Western countries uh, in terms of enduring levels of patriotism and nationalism. One of the things we've talked about on this podcast has been uh, the, the information asymmetry between China and the West. And, and more recently, I, as, I, as I've thought about it, as we've thought about this information asymmetry, it's almost more appropriate to talk about a kind of information decoupling that the information environments within the People's Republic are so vastly different than they are in other parts of the world, particularly in the West. And that's not an accident because, of course, there's a great deal of effort in China on the part of the party and its various institutions to manage the message. What role do you think that plays in this, in this, in this difference between how these subgroups react in China versus how these subgroups 
may behave in other parts of the world, particularly if we're thinking about the, the West? Yeah, information asymmetry and information decoupling. I think these are both really important topics um, and they, they shape the ways that we perceive the world. Let, let's start with the asymmetry. I often hear from Chinese colleagues, in fact, from a very, very young age, uh, when I was a 10, 11-year-old living in Beijing, just after the Cultural Revolution, and certainly later, uh, before Tiananmen, um, during the sort of height of Chinese uh, liberalism in the late 1980s, I was at Beida in 1988, I would often hear from Chinese friends and um, acquaintances, you know, you Americans just don't, don't understand us and you don't know much about us, but we know a lot about you. Um, so it's all your fault. <laughs> uh, as a putting my social slash political psychology hat on, I think it's important to distinguish between knowledge and understanding. So uh, there is actually, I, I think, probably an, an information asymmetry in the sense that most Chinese could name more American brands than Americans could name Chinese brands. I think in part that's just a natural result of a kind of periphery, you know, center periphery dynamic. I mean, the U.S. is the global superpower. You know, it just dominates the world in terms of much of popular culture, certainly economics. And so it's just natural, you know, just like within China, probably someone from Podunk, Gansu, knows more about Beijing than people in Beijing know about Podunk, Gansu, right? I mean, it's just a natural product of of the kind of center-periphery relationship that there, will, there are information asymmetries. Um, however, I usually argue that when it comes to understanding, which is different from just knowing facts, you know, kind of Wikipedia style, understanding requires the additional step of perspective taking and empathy and trying to see where the other person is coming from. Um, I think both sides are equally lacking in understanding of each other. And I do think that that does contribute to nationalism on both sides, say in the U.S.-China context. So that's the asymmetry thing. The decoupling um, is another issue that's complicated, um, but also very important. Um, you know, clearly ordinary Chinese and say ordinary Americans um, live in extremely different information environments and they're becoming more and more different, as you pointed out. And this allows for disinformation to sway the opinions of ordinary Americans and Chinese. So just to take a recent example from China, you know, this narrative that was put out by both the Chinese government and promoted on, on Chinese social media, uh, that the United States was involved in producing chemical weapons with the Ukraine, which is very similar to Russian narratives, and therefore, for example, harken back to a similar disinformation campaign from the early 1950s during the Korean War, where the then Soviet Union um, and then Mao's China uh, worked together on a disinformation campaign to claim that the U.S. and um, the U.N. forces uh, in South Korea were engaging in biological warfare, chemical warfare. These kinds of disinformation campaigns are, are very effective in the absence of disconfirming evidence. Certainly, if I were Chinese and I you know, heard that Americans were working with Ukrainians in biological or chemical warfare, I would not like Americans and I would support Russia against Ukraine. And indeed, there's a lot of survey evidence that 
is really remarkable that you know Chinese the Chinese public is supporting Russia and doesn't have really any sympathy for the the plight of the Ukrainian people. So this kind of um, information decoupling is highly consequential. Just staying with that for a little bit, because this is something I also wanted to ask you. Uh, the information decoupling, as I've as I see it, also is not only between East and West or between the U.S. and China, but also between uh, rich and poor and educated and uneducated and overlaps with your observation that the countryside residents are more likely to be nationalistic. The way I see it right now, we, we do see the, the bombardment of propaganda on the news and the social media every day uh, about uh, basically supporting Putin's framing of the event. And, you, and this nationalist uh, analyst, uh, Professor Zhang Weiwei, talks a lot about Nazism and how... Uh, and actually says, and he makes the case that even Chinese people are ill-informed about that because of Western hegemony, hegemony of the Western media discourse. So I've heard him talk a lot about that. So there's like different narratives going on, but but the people that are in the know here, and we're talking about a lot of young people who who get who have VPNs and jump over the firewall every day, and are really seeing both sides or all sides, and are and are very conversant with English and are able to absorb Western media easily. They don't quite see it this way. I mean, they they will wink and say, you know, everybody's lying to everybody on this, and they don't they don't buy it. What I'm what I'm wondering is, since it's so much obviously in China's interest, especially now post meeting at the Olympics with Xi Jinping when they declared what was it eternal, the relationship had no ends or was limitless or something. Thing like that, it, it really behooves Xi Jinping and the government to keep this narrative alive. But what does it have to do in terms of what is their hope? What is their what is their goal here in in pushing this narrative in terms of in terms of nationalism and 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 patriotism? Um, I, I guess we, we could take that from a no, number of angles. I'll I'll be quick with the aspect that is the most common, which is the geostrategic. I mean, uh, a Xi Jinping and a CCP leadership that sees itself as increasingly backed into a corner um, since COVID-19 began and the the object of uh, Western critique, um, which is clearly seen uh, at the elite level, uh, but now increasingly reflected in global public opinion towards China, uh, which dropped pretty precipitously. Uh, following the outbreak of, um, well, not the outbreak of COVID and not even the epidemic within China, but it becoming a global pandemic. And then the, the decision by the CCP leadership to essentially deny that there were, they had any responsibility um, for the outbreak becoming an epidemic and then becoming a pandemic, uh, when clearly uh, there, were, there was misfunction, to put it I think generously, um, in terms of how the local Wuhan and provincial governments um, handled the initial outbreak. But anyway, this decision to go into you know full rebuttal mode and to double down on some of the tougher foreign policy clearly reflected a, a, a kind of strategic decision that you know, we're going to fight back against this. And the result has been an increasing deterioration of China's relations with the West and most of the outside world. And so within that context, I think there came to be seen a, a greater need for some kind of affirmation from a significant external partner and, and Russia uh, serves that role, um, potentially as a 
an actual military power uh, supplier of oil energy needs as well, but also psychologically. Um, so it's been quite interesting to follow how, for example, the Chinese state media and Chinese social media have responded to Putin's speeches um, and the ways that they've been incorporated into Chinese narratives of constantly being humiliated by Japan and the West um, and essentially making the Russia-Ukraine story a story about China and the West. They're humiliated like us, so we feel schadenfreude when Russia attacks Ukraine, which symbolizes the U.S., and we, you know, embrace the Russian view that, you know, this is a actually a defensive uh, war uh, against NATO expansion. Um, so that I think there's a psychological dimension to this embrace of Russia and its narrative beyond just the kind of um, geopolitics of it. You know, my dad has a bumper sticker or had a bumper sticker. And it's a pretty common one. It was, you know, I support the Boston Red Sox and whoever's playing the Yankees. There's a, a connection, I feel like, between some of this pro-Russia feeling among many Chinese nationalists and a lot of the pro-Russia feeling you see in parts of the United States, particularly among, you know, the right, the American right wing, which is people I don't like are lining up behind Ukraine. Therefore, I don't really care if the Ukrainians are fighting Putin or if they're fighting space aliens that are dressed as giant hamsters. If the Ukraine loses and this other force wins, that's my way of dunking on the people I don't like. So that's why I'm lining up behind them. I mean, that's like the psychology of that. Again, I, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I, I, I can feel the psychology behind it. And I do wonder what that means in terms of foreign policy decisions, because there are people who argue that, for example, popular nationalism, the way that people feel matters a great deal in democracies, but doesn't matter as much in an authoritarian regime like China or Russia. But, I, you know, more recently, you've argued the reverse, that in fact, well, I should say you've, you've complicated that narrative by suggesting that perhaps... You know, social influence does matter. I was wondering if you can explain a little bit more about how that would work within the context of an authoritarian system. Yeah, I've been arguing against that that kind of view that um, you know authoritarian public opinion is an oxymoron. That you know, in authoritarian systems, they're completely top down. The people are powerless. Um, public opinion doesn't matter. I actually think that that is is wrong in specific sectors at specific times, that it's contingent on the specific kinds of politics of state legitimation of the day. So what do I mean by that? Uh, let's take the case of China. So the Chinese Communist Party came to power in 1949, making two claims. One was you should let us, to, to the Chinese people, you know, why should you let us rule? First, you know, we're gonna make things more just um, so this was a kind of communist claim, uh, anti-landlords, this kind of uh, more of an economic claim. Um, but also, let's remember what Mao is famous for saying in 1949 when the PRC was established. It was not, you know, uh, workers of the world unite. It was actually the Chinese people have stood up, which is not a, a, a kind of Marxian or communist claim. It's a it's a fundamentally nationalist claim. And the PRC, sorry, the CCP essentially said we were more nationalist than our rivals, the Nationalist Party. And that argument won out and the Chinese people ended up supporting the Chinese Communist Party. 
with the Cultural Revolution, with Tiananmen in 1989, any kind of legitimation based on actual communism as an ideology has largely been discredited. And instead, the CCP has embraced that other claim, nationalism, more and more. And indeed, that is absolutely central to Xi Jinping's claim to a third uh, term in office, which is what he's going to ask for in October. Um, and it's very central to the whole idea of Zhongguo uh, Meng, uh, a China dream. And that includes things like reunifying with Taiwan. So the government is saying to the people, Xi Jinping is saying, if you let me continue to rule, um, I will make China great again. It's, it's not too different from the Trumpian claim, uh, but it is fundamentally a nationalist claim. And for that reason, on this particular issue, even though China is an authoritarian system, the people can speak back. That's why you see chaos. I mean, in a way, it's democracy gone crazy um, when it comes to social media discussions of nationalist issues. I mean, if you want to talk about, if you want to bash Japan in China, go right ahead. Um, the, the Chinese government is not going to tell you, shut up. Um, if, if you want to speak your mind on other topics that the government does not make a claim to legitimate rule upon, the government has an easier time kind of saying you don't have the freedom of speech on these issues. Um, but it's precisely because the Chinese Communist Party today says you should let us rule based on nationalism that the Chinese people can talk about nationalism and Chinese popular nationalists can demand that their government takes a more nationalist line. And so increasingly what we see is that the Chinese government is responsive to nationalist public opinion, where it may not be responsive in the same way to opinion on other issues, like NIMBY issues, say, on uh, pollution in my neighborhood. And that is uh, very similar to what we see in democracies, where elected leaders respond to the desires of their constituents out of a self-interest in getting reelected. One difference, though, is that all leaders in democratic systems have, a, an, a, to a certain extent, procedural legitimacy. People say, okay, you won the election, um, so I will consent to your rule. Even if I disagree with your policies, I'll have a chance in a couple of years to vote you out and get another politician who's, you know, who will do the kinds of things that I want. Chinese Communist Party, authoritarian systems more broadly, they don't have that procedural legitimacy. So all they have is the legitimacy based on the specific kinds of claims that they make. And in China's case, the nationalist claim is particularly central to Xi Jinping and the China dream. So it actually, I actually think, and I, I, I don't have a robust set of evidence to support this, but I think it, it makes the Chinese government particularly attentive to nationalist opinion, which is why we should care about Chinese nationalist opinion. And I'm glad you guys are doing a, a show on this because I, I do think it matters. You, you remind me of something I'd like to bring up because it, it seems relevant. And I, and I certainly uh, agree with your the sentiments you just expressed, where, which are in a chapter of uh, David Shambaugh's, not his newest book, but the, the, the book China and the World, which we will link to at our website for, for sure. So we're basically discussing that chapter. Just yesterday, or the day before, another Peter, there's a Peter Hessler, 
uh, had an article in the New Yorker about his experience teaching Chinese students at Sichuan University. And he talks about a principle that the Chinese students kind of have to function under, and that's and they, this this the this classical idiom that they use, or that I guess the government uses, but the students will use it, is an old idiom called "yin ye fei shi," which which means you shouldn't we shouldn't give up eating f- just for fear of choking. Uh, that's the logic uh, that you shouldn't be not eat just because you're afraid of choking. And the idea is, uh, for example, if there's a Three Gorges Dam project, the the only question is, is it worth doing? Do the 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 advantages outweigh the disadvantages? And if the answer is that the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, then basically the the attitude of the CCP is okay. Well, then shut up <laughs> because it's a, a no, it's a done deal, and we won't tolerate uh, you know arguments about it. You know, Hessler talks about this this dynamic because he is teaching students, young students who, who are very much inclined, uh, well inclined to China, uh, very w- well disposed to, towards the government and approve of what the government is doing and are patriotic and are proud of China for what it's done, justly so, and are thinking of going overseas and getting a degree. But many of them, most of them want to come back because they love this country. But they feel stifled because they want to have a voice and they feel like there's some things that they don't like. The example of the lockdown in Shanghai would be a good one. I hope we can bring it up in a minute because I'd like to hear what you think about that. But the problem is that they they sit there and feel like, you know, here I am. I'm a patriot. I'm not inciting rebellion. I, I'm on China's side. Why can't I talk about this? And in fact, nowadays, it's gotten worse in terms of what you can say and can't say on social media. So, I mean, I, I don't know what you feel about that. that. I mean, certainly... Nationalism, yes, but what about all these things in the crack that even the highly nationalist people would would like to be able to take part in the discourse at least? Yeah, I I, I think it, it really boils down to you know who gets to decide when the the benefits outweigh the costs, right? I mean that that's the nub of the question of political systems, you know, democratic versus authoritarian in Xi Jinping's China. Authority is increasingly concentrated in the hands of one man who makes a decision that, you know, whether it's building a dam or, you know, we're going to go ahead and and knock down somebody's house to make way for a road or or something, or what the foreign policy is going to be, you know, those decisions are being made top down. And I think, you know, for probably for Peter Hessler's students, there's no, I, I don't see necessarily any contradiction between them being highly patriotic and even nationalistic on the one hand, and also being frustrated that they don't have the freedom to speak out and have input into decisions that affect their daily lives when they do have those freedoms in other realms, like talking about how much they hate Japan. Now, will that contradiction eventually boil over? That's the million dollar question for political scientists like myself. But there is a tension there. Thank you for the, the reference. I will look for that. Peter Hessler is a, a great writer and I think a thoughtful commentator on China. And I think those kinds of anecdotes and insights um, are part of answering your questions. So, you know, we can use surveys, um, but there are other kinds of data. We can look at the kinds of things that people do, kinds of things that Chinese say, so that kind of anecdotal uh, evidence is, is also valuable in trying to figure out some of these puzzles, such as the, the question of, of the impact of, of ordinary Chinese 
on policymaking. And again, I, I think it's very important to be specific about, for example, under what circumstances or among what groups of people or what topics might public opinion matter. And I personally push the view that when it comes to nationalist issues, if something happens related to especially Japan, uh, given that the Chinese government has really successfully inculcated a view of, of Japan as you know, the worst of the devils. You know, you just, you say Guizhi in China and it's, it's understood. You're talking about Japan and the Japanese. The, the default um, meaning is, is Japanese, right? That's the default. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's one of those things that is both sort of funny and scary because when, if, when you put a psychological hat on and think about that, you know, devils are not human and dehumanizing and demonizing have historically been connected with genocide. I mean, that to, I think there's a lot of good scholarship that argues that, for example, the Holocaust could never have occurred if the German people had not been persuaded through propaganda that the Jews were vermin. So it's not just that they weren't fully as human as other Germans, it's that they, they were a pest that needed to be exterminated, that to be a good person, to be a good German, um, you had a duty to exterminate Jews. If they're vermin, you know, they'll bring disease. Because of that historical experience, you know, when I, when I see this kind of rhetoric that dehumanizes and demonizes the Japanese, it, it does scare me because it could just take another spark. You know, say there's some plane collision uh, tomorrow, except unlike 2001, it's not between the U.S. and, and China, it's between Japan and China. Do we think that the Japanese and, and Chinese leadership will be able to contain such a situation given the way that Chinese public opinion feels about Japan? Uh, even Xi Jinping, well, he, uh, he's very powerful within the Chinese political system, but he's staked his claim to legitimate rule on nationalism. Is he going to step step back from a conflict with Japan. And, you know, the Japanese situation, the, the, the right also is a powerful force. And J Japan is a democracy and certainly public opinion matters in Japan as well. So, yeah, disturbing. Well, first of all, I'm glad David brought up the Peter Hessler piece because in our particular field, which is international education, wow, the University of Pittsburgh and the various uh, joint venture study abroad education programs did not come across looking particularly good in that piece. But going back to what Peter just said, I, I think I think you bring, bring up kind of a, a you know a nightmare scenario, which is you know just uh, just this week we had a couple of aircraft. I think there were helicopters, you know, flying over into spaces between the PRC and Taiwan into their airspace, and this, these kind of incursions have been happening quite a bit. There's been a few. I don't know how you, I don't know the naval term for it, but games of chicken being played in the South China Sea. And as we learned 20 years ago, it doesn't take much for one of these events to perhaps create an accident. And are the mechanisms in place to contain the fallout from this? And of course, that's a, a concern for all of us, particularly if you're a foreigner living in China. But I wonder if it's also a concern, as, as you kind of mentioned, for the, for the leadership. 
because the thing about nationalism, and we've seen this in Chinese history before, you know, going back to May 4th era and after, is that if you allow nationalism to boil over, it is an extraordinarily powerful force kind of like a wave if you're surfing it. As long as you're on top of it and you're riding it, you're okay. But the minute it starts to overtake you, that can co- it has caused problems in the past. Now, of course, past problems don't indicate future challenges all the time, but it is instructive. And I, I wonder, does are there mechanisms in place in China to put guardrails on this nationalism if something were to occur? And what would be the... What would be some of the outcomes or possible outcomes if those guard if those guardrails were not put in place, or if the nationalism boiled over beyond what the government was able to control? Yeah, I, I agree with your your basic framing, and you know I think the metaphor of a, a wave or riding a tiger it's been used a lot, but I think it is appropriate. Um, you know, the Chinese government has played a role in socializing the Chinese people into this kind of Darwinian view of international affairs. China is victimized by evil imperialism from Japan to the US to the UK. And if some accident should occur between the militaries of any of those countries and China, I think it would be very difficult for the government to not respond forcefully in order to appease domestic public opinion, especially with Japan, but also with those other countries. Are there guardrails in place? The, the government has its strategies to, to try to control and, you know, they talk about managing public opinion. And it often means utilizing uh, journalists, intellectuals or lower level politicians to, to try to, you know, send out the message that, you know, we need a rational nationalism. Uh, in fact, Xi Jinping, I think back in 2011, 2012, when some of the conflict with uh, Japan was first rearing up and before he uh, became the new paramount leader, he was pushed forward to sort of uh, preach restraint. But then once that passed, um, you know, he put forward his China dream and he's he's made his own pitch on nationalism. But I could imagine in a future such scenario that uh, nationalist journalists, nationalist uh, academics might be pushed to try to rein in their constituencies, you know, the people who, who read them, them on social media, and lesser politicians might also be asked to do so, because it would be too risky for C himself uh, to try to speak directly to the, to the Chinese public and say, you know, no, we can't, we can't act in too rash a way, especially, for example, if a, another Chinese was killed in such an accident. Um, These accidents are a very real possibility. And while low probability, um, the consequences are potentially very high. Those of us who are interested in forecasting the future, unfortunately, we tend to downplay those probabilities. You know, the accidents of history, which historians like yourself, I think, are keen to understand and include in their post facto explanations for past events, whether it's the French Revolution or the Xinhai Guoming, you know, we all see how random things affect those outcomes after the fact. Often when we're thinking about forecasting the future, we 
we forget those and focus instead just on the individual agency of leaders or structural factors. But randomness and accidents matter. Thank you so much for helping us to make sense of some really challenging times. There's a lot going on here in China, around the world. You know, I think these are issues that are going to be we're going to need to follow and think about as we go through 2022 and and hopefully if we manage to see 2023 that year as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It was a delight uh, chatting with you and um, hope things improve in Shanghai and Beijing. You know, I think it was great that we were able to talk to, to Peter. I think there's so many people who are talking about 2020, 2021, 2022 as being some kind of, you know, tipping point between, you know, either the world is becoming increasingly divided or at least the divide between China and the rest of the world has kind of reached a crisis point. And I, I don't know if that's hyperbole. Uh, certainly those of us who are kind of in the field, maybe we feel these things more acutely and more keenly. But I, I feel really good about talking to, uh, to, to Professor Greece to kind of get the the bigger context for what this means in terms of foreign policy. What's your takeaway, David? Yeah, I think there were a lot of other things we could have talked to him about. Uh, But yeah, I I think he has a good take on the, the notion that that they, and even better in his article that we which will which we will post a link to uh, on our webpage, but yeah, he's he's he sort of does a good job of of highlighting the fact that the the Chinese government is actually cons- somewhat constrained these dynamics that they've set up, which is uh, highly nationalist, and and also uh, what we we sometimes uh, in our in Chinese studies, you know, analyzing the Chinese system call performance legitimacy. Which is, you know, they have got to perform, and this is very true with the with the COVID nineteen case. So performance legitimacy is something I wanted to ask Pete about. But is, the notion is, since they don't, as he said, you know, they don't have this this sort of uh, electoral legitimacy. You have I have to do well for the people, or you'll you'll vote me out. They don't really have a constitutional legitimacy, and they do sort of have strongman legitimacy, but not in the sense uh, of of a. Uh, Duterte or some or somebody like that. So what they have is something that we have called performance legitimacy, which is a sort of a deal, a devil's deal with the public. We'll give you, you know, economic freedom and economic prosperity, and have, uh, you know, you'll do better year after year, and also uh, pride and self confidence as a nation uh, in the in the global setting. And but in exchange, you give us legitimacy. And when you have a crisis like this COVID breakout, and we saw it in Shanghai, then there then it starts to get shaky, because, you know, that's really the only that's the fundamental dynamic of the relationship is that you have to perform well, and they know that. And they usually do very well. That's the amazing thing. But but when the when it gets shaky, then the, then the nationalism and the the, the sort of self-preservation and the and just the the normal sorts of disenchantment or or anger at various government policies become, becomes comes out and and spills spills out and comes to the surface. So I think he 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 made a good point about all of those things that that nationalism is for the Chinese government a, a kind of a uh, it's kind of a shadow that 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 always is over over them like a cloud that that could erupt at any time. And he said it very well, and you also said it very well. I think for so long we've talked about performance legitimacy and how it functions in terms of economics. You know, the great, the, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but the bargain that was made in the post-Tiananmen era in which 
you know, the party kind of jettisoned Karl Marx in favor of Ronald Reagan. You know, are you better, you know, for since the 1990s into the 2000s, you know, are you better off now than you were four years ago? That kind of thing. But I think what's been really interesting in the COVID era is how that performance legitimacy has also been part of increasing the confidence of the Chinese people who a lot of people, even I think particularly people who are cosmopolitan educated are aware of the world, but they're also aware of attitudes towards China. And it always was a problem because as well-meaning as the foreigners were, the people outside of China had a tendency to always look... not everyone and not always intentionally, but a lot of the things people would say about China, you know, yeah, I went to China. It was crazy. It was like, you should see the bathrooms there or, you know, all these diseases seem to come from China or there's a lot of this kind of rhetoric out there. And for the first time in really modern history, China was looking like the clean space. This was a space where there was no COVID. The rest of the world was going to hell. The rest of the world was full of disease. The rest of the world, people were dying. But in China, we were in this bubble. We are the, you know, we're being kept pure of this this pandemic that's affecting the entire world. And I think one of the reasons why the CCP and and the party finds itself in the cul-de-sac of policy that has resulted in these lockdowns and a perpetual zero COVID revolution is that they're not quite sure how to break out of that without damaging that performance legitimacy that has you know, given people a sense of, of pride in the fact that China handled, at least after the initial outbreak, handled the pandemic in a way that protected people far above what was shown in, you know, the West, United States, and and Europe. That's right, and it, this this sort of taps into another aspect that he talks about in his or writes about in his article that I wish that we had had time to talk with him about. He he spends much of the articles differentiating uh, the very definition of nationalism in the Chinese context, which is a, a different sort of animal than it is in most, at least in Western democracies, and he, he identifies these components. Uh, or what he calls a nationalist kind of impulse and a cosmopolitan kind of in, impulse. So the nationalist is what you're saying, this pure patriotism. You know, I'm Chinese. We love China. It's a very pure sort of thing. Cosmopolitan, as he he calls it, is a different kind of impulse. It's not at odds necessarily with nationalism, but it's a kind of a universalism which identifies with the advanced West, which is saying, you know, we we are part of the, the global order. We we are global citizens, and and especially in a place like Shanghai, where it's very Western, you know, very Western focused. Lots of of modernity, lots of young people, and people that you know, very proud of being Chinese, but also are very focused on the West and take pride in that as well. They feel pride in that. As long as China, the government is functioning to provide, as you said, uh, are are you better now than you were four years ago, and will you be better off four years from now? As long as they fulfill that that kind of metric then in a certain sense, those two work hand in hand very well because you can be a global citizen and take plane flights and come back, but China is still a cool place and you feel comfortable here and you identify with China. When it starts to break down, then you've got this conflict. And then the, then the, then the comparison starts to come out not so, not so well. And uh, then you get this phenomenon that you're seeing and I'm seeing that you mentioned. A lot of, of Shanghaiese are thinking, you know, I have the wherewithal. I want to get out of here. Many are, many of them are thinking I want to get out of because they feel they feel relatively comfortable in both worlds. 
they're cosmopolitan. They're they're nationalistic. They love China, but they're also they also like the West. They're well disposed to the West, and they like those value systems as well. Yeah, I think this will be interesting to see how this pull, how this uh, plays out, because there is this tension there, and it's right there in Shanghai, which is why it's so interesting that that the worst lockdown is taking place there. Beijing is also interesting because we're the seat of government and uh, we, we are sort of have a sense of entitlement that it is different because we're the capital city and they wouldn't dare do what they've did, done in Shanghai. So these are all fascinating things. And that's why I think I, it was good to have Peter on because they all have to do with China's nationalism, which is a very uh, liquid thing, a watery thing, a very blurry, easily morphed thing that goes, that can, as he says, very context- Dependent. So yeah, I think you and I have sort of lived through a decade, a couple decades, uh, the one right at, uh, before and after the Olympics, where the, the Chinese did begin to get a sense of um, national pride. Obviously, the, the, the hundred years of humiliation had come to an end, and they begin to say, "Hey, we're not doing so badly." And that was also at the same time they became more linked in and tapped into foreign media and were able to read what people were saying about China, and they didn't like it. So you had this pride and this feeling of na of nationalism, along but alongside the a kind of cosmopolitanism, as as uh, as Pete put it, where they also are they care about the West, they care about America, and they would like to be a part of the, uh, this global, uh, mod you know, modernization and Westernization movement. But at the same time, they get angry when people criticize China. So it's. All I can say, it's very, it's very fascinating, and uh, to be in the midst of that, uh, but also a little bit scary because there's, there are some tipping points, and there are some, some superpower conflicts happening here, in which a lot of people are going to get crushed if there's a full out war, war of any kind. Speaking of COVID and tipping points, I got to get downstairs <laughs> you, and get you in line, <laughs> so I can get my throat swabbed. Otherwise, my green health code will change to a different color and I'll be even more restricted in my movements than I am now. David, it's so good to uh, see you virtually from across the city and uh, looking forward to our next conversation. Yeah, I hope we can be in person. Stay green, Jeremiah. Stay green.